Hello, and welcome to Manga Explaining, the show where we recommend great manga to folks who haven't read much manga before. Hosted by Deb Aoki, David Brothers, myself, Christopher Butcher, and Chip Zdarsky. Follow along with our show notes and reading list at mangasplaining.com. Well, we made it, y'all. We made it. This is the last <laughs> episode of season one, well, the last real episode of season one, where we talk about Akira Volume 2, bringing this whole season full circle. Very excited to talk about Akira with you all. This is a big, this is a big, big situation. This is the first time we've covered a second book by the same author. It's uh, the second volume of a book. Yeah. Going Except for all it. those times where we've covered volume twos of things. No, we covered it <laughs> like in a row. I think it's. I'm. I want to get into that because I think the distance between reading volume one, and volume two was very interesting for me. I actually mm-hmm. read it this week rather than like you know, reading it right after we finished volume one or reading the whole series again. So I want to talk about that. Right. Yeah. I'm really, I'm just really happy that we actually got to 25 <laughs> weeks of podcast. It's kind of crazy. Most of these things die out after like five. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks y'all. This is great. We're saving all the personality clashing for the second season. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> oh man. I don't have my soundboard open. I could have put in something awful. Uh, That's what was going <laughs> to cause the personality clash. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all of us clashing with your personality. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. you know, you guys are so mean on the episodes I host. I'm glad what? <laughs> that people seem to like that. Just, just do them better. I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm better, I swear to God. All right, so Akira Volume Two. As I went back and actually listened to episodes um, zero and one, just to see what we thought about Akira the first time, and one of the things I was really surprised about about Akira is how much ground we had to cover in introducing Akira as a, as a book, as like a project, as an anime, as this like force of nature, just in that book, just to get it to the point where we could actually talk about the book. This episode, I don't think we're going to cover, I don't want to, like, we can talk about it if it comes up, obviously, but I don't want to like <laughs> have to introduce who Otomo is again and introduce like there was an Akira movie and it was real big and whatever. So I kind of want to just get to like the meat of this volume and how it continues, um, how it continues the story. Before I say too much, much more, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. And you know, what were your thoughts on pick, what were your thoughts on Akira Volume Two? What were your thoughts on picking it up after Akira Volume One? And this is open to the floor. I'm not going to make anyone go first this time. I'll see who's all right. Second. Well, I, I I rarely go first, so I'll I'll go first. I enjoyed it, but primarily I enjoyed it for the art, hmm. which I think got even stronger somehow in Volume Two. Yeah. And I I think what impressed me most is that it got stronger, even though the environments were more limited. Mm. Like the fact that so much of it took place, like kind of in the corridors and getting down into the, like the subterranean cryo area where Akira was, there's a lot of repetition, but yet Otomo kept it super vibrant and interesting Mm -hmm. to look at. Like even the platform elevator, like it's just like so gorgeously rendered. So cool. Like, I love just, that platform like, elevator. Like, there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's unbelievable world building in this series. So there's that. The only downside I found to volume two was there's no real character progression here. Hmm. Like it's most, it's, it's, it's like a 300 pages of kind of chase stuff, hiding, mm-hmm. chase, hiding, chase, you know, there's revelations. So there's there's some plot, but there's not a lot of character development, which is fine. Like I'm kind of, I get it. This thing's six volumes, so it's not going to be all like <laughs> you know revelations about the inner workings of these characters' psyches. 
but that, that was kind of the only kind of disappointing part for me. I'm very, I, I was kind of, while I was reading it, I, I kept thinking, oh, I hope this doesn't end with them finding Akira. <laughs> you know, because it felt like that, because like, like the whole volume was like basically just people going, oh, but what about Akira? Oh, but they're so close to Akira. Is, are the levels in Akira's place okay? Oh, the levels are different in Akira's place. Like the whole volume just like constantly just dropping Akira's name and is leading you to think that this is what the cliffhanger is going to be, but it's not. Like obviously Akira gets out before the end and, you know, spoilers, the arm panel is so good. It is so the best. Good. It's so good. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it greatly. And just as a study of pacing and panels and environment, it's, um, it's the best in the world. Sounds about right. Yeah, nailed it. I, I understand manga now. We did it. <laughs> Episode 25. Victory. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Manga it only took much. 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> but this volume of Akira is, like, it has most of my favorite drawings from the series mm. in terms of iconic moments or dumb jokes. Like you mentioned the elevator, like there are several people I've bonded with on the internet over how good that drawing and the sound effects are in like the Marvel color edition. Like just something about it clicks, like it feels right. And it feels like you can hear the movie on the comics page, Mm. which I think is not something that comics like they're not like a secondary form of movies. But in this case, like the, the execution is so strong that like the scene feels like the scene from the movies, despite being drawn differently. Yeah. And I agree with Chip. Like, it's really kind of a series of chases and mm-hmm. attacks. So there's not really a lot of room for character development. But we do get a lot of character spamming. Like, Kaneda is on fire in this volume. <laughs> the yeah. bit where he, he, they open the elevator and there's a bunch of guys inside, which is already a great joke. And then he goes to shoot a guy with a laser and the batteries instantly die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also I have a good joke. Flag too. I <laughs> <Yeah>. love that. <laughs> yeah. Just all that stuff, like it's such a technically impressive series. Yeah. yeah. Especially like this book, I even reading it in black and white, like I could feel the color version that I saw the first time. Mm-hmm. And they feel almost like different, not different comics, but they're so different a reading experience that I think you should do both if you can. Mm-hmm. Like the lettering's like chunkier and more organic in the Marvel version. The sound effects are different. It's just really cool. And it's so cool that I actually think like seeing the different versions, seeing the different translations and seeing the film version, like only makes it better. Do you have a preference? The Marvel color editions, I think. Yeah. But that's like nostalgia. You know, this was probably the first manga I read. It was, you know, the, not the adaptation of my, one of my favorite anime, but the like origination of one of my favorite anime. Mm. Mm. And the color scene with his arm is so gross in color. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. (laughs) That's one thing that manga gets away with by being black and white is that you can have really bloody, gory scenes. But if when it's in black mm-hmm. and white, it's somehow not as bad. Yeah. For example, reading Demon Slayer on manga mm. and watching the Demon Slayer anime is almost two different experiences. <laughs> yeah. mm. It's there are several like there are several manga meant for young boys that have scenes where he, villains get holes blown through their chest so that you can see through it, like the Frank Miller Jeff Darrow thing yeah. hard-boiled yeah and it's fine because there's no actual blood it's all black and white mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but when you animate that you're like oh wait no like that guy's dead 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 
Well, Tarantino did that on Kill Bill as well, where he made that whole sequence black and white so they didn't show the blood so he could get it down from an X rating. I think that's a really interesting visual <laughs> storytelling telling style. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, they t- take off limbs and stuff like that, and that would have pushed it above a hard R. So, what is it's it really about? What is it about blood? Because, like, that's always like the note we get at Marvel. Oh, like, the blood has to be like shifted to a different color or got rid mm. of or whatever. Like, mm. and these are stories where like Wolverine's cutting people's heads and arms off, but like, oh, ew, oh, the stuff inside a person, the liquid inside yeah. a person is just too much. Like, okay. in the 90s, they changed the blood in Mortal Kombat on the Super Nintendo edition to like sweat instead. Yeah. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. Wow. That's 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 it's, not that's kind of almost on the long lines of like with that Pokemon one where they said oh he had rice balls and says, Oh, I love jelly donuts. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> same deal. I love thinking of Mortal Kombat just one of those characters going like, Wow, what a workout. <laughs> <laughs> Finish your set. <laughs> 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 Sorry, but uh, no, Deb, okay, what, okay. what did you think about Akira this time? <laughs> Volume two. I mean, yes, I agree with all of everything you said. Like, he's really getting into doing these panels in a really masterful way. He's building suspense. Mm-hmm. He's uh, doing using different angles to show action, making it more dramatic. I was like looking at page two thirty two, where there's all these different angles of this tension when. Uh, Tetsuo is right in front of Akira's chamber, and like mm. there's the scientist looking worried, and then there's a countdown, and then there's the people you know aiming at him, and there's there's all the, these different angles and uh, perspectives, so it builds yeah. tension in a really interesting way. It, there's just there's also a lot of interesting comeuppance theater happening, like a lot of foreshadowing, <laughs> you know, like the scientists and then the, the colonel saying like, why do you want to even, you know, keep, you know, Akira, right? Like, and he goes, it's, are you willing to do all this just for your scientific ego and curiosity? And then sure enough, he gets a frozen. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess some of the, some of the things that I thought were really neat were like when the, the in the beginning when Kay is possessed, but you don't mm. know she's possessed. So as a reader, you think, wait, does she have powers too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it, then it's slow. It's slowly he slowly reveals to you that it's the kids. And then you then there's a scene where K like K turns, and then the girl Kyoko turns, and it panels right next to each other. And then you think, oh yeah, K's facial expression is remarkably different than she mm-hmm. is at any other time. So it's this kind of subtle thing. And it, but you you take it in because you think oh well she's you know she's in a she's in a bind she's very serious mm-hmm. but then it's not obvious when you first encounter these things that she's possessed it she he sets up a mystery and then he very masterfully reveals what's really happening yeah mm. I thought that was really and cool. that's such like a brave thing to do as an artist like really like trusting your skills that you can sell mm-hmm. facial expressions in like a static medium this way i'm also really you know aware of the of the the, the fact that he uses kaneda as both hero and comic relief yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, like so. like when he slides under the the door that's coming down and goes safe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i kind of thought that was really nice you know there's a, a nice little it's not 100 percent serious mm-hmm. but, but yeah. it goes at a good pace and he every now and then he leavens it with a little bit of uh, just, just like that 
you know, that funny moment, kind of like in Star Wars, right? When like, like Han Solo, like, you know, wax Chewbacca's laugh it up, fuzz face, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I want to go back to something that each one of you said, because I think that it's, it mirrors some of my thoughts. The backgrounds in this are, are outstanding, even better, I think, than the first episode in a lot of ways. I'm like Chip was saying, but I actually thought that this one felt more like um, anime. It felt like every scene was a set piece, like almost like it was going to be filmed. And mm. so this sequence is going to take place in this place. This sequence is going to take place in this place. The sequence is going to take place in this place. So you kind of get these, like it feels more like it, the first volume felt like whatever was on the page at the moment is just what he needed to tell the story. Mm. He feels like he's, I feel like he's figured out the story in this volume in a really clear way. Where yeah. like you mm-hmm. get to the end of volume one and it's like, we, we talked a lot about how the characters double back on themselves quite a bit in the first volume. In this one, it's all momentum. It's all forward momentum. And it's like, this takes place here. This takes place here. This takes place here. And when they do go back and reuse a set from the first, reuse a set, air quotes, from the first volume, Kaneda mentions it. He's like, oh, this place again. I hate this place and have bad memories of it. And Kay's like, yeah, who gives a <laughs> shit? Fuck you. Uh, like, shut up. I think that that's really interesting because it does feel like this is the volume where it moved from, I have an idea and I'm going to work it out on the page to he got ahead and maybe now he's like set the plan for the whole series. So it was really interesting in that regard. David, I agree with you. This is actually, as we know from a couple episodes ago, we were gifted the hardcovers of Akira <laughs> and uh, as graphs within it. <laughs> I was surprised. I actually read the the this version first. I was surprised at how much I missed the English language sound effects that were in the, oh, really? uh, the version mm-hmm. of the first time. Yeah. The, the English language ones, the French, I guess they're even French language, technically sound effects that uh, Marvel yeah. borrowed. But another thing I know the is, dark horse borrowed. Yeah. Dark horse borrowed. Sorry. The translation of the Marvel edition is looser, but it feels much more like an adaptation. Joe Duffy is mm-hmm. responsible for the adaptation on the Marvel. And then the first dark horse editions, and just sort of comparing sequences, she wasn't afraid to give more personality to some of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that that plays out in like lettering choices, sound effect choices, things like that as well. So there is a, a palpable difference between the two. And I, I'm not sure, like I missed the one that I'm nostalgic for. I think I'm with David on that <laughs> one. You know, I kind of love that one. But it's amazing to see this, which is like much maybe closer to the original. And I think mm. the, the the adapters would have had the benefit at some level of having seen how the characters' personalities developed in the movie. They're a little ah. bit different the movie. And so being yeah. able to like reverse engineer some of that into their adaptation of the comics is really interesting. I don't know. I'd, yeah. I'd have to go through But that's the credits. Here. But that's reflected in the credits because it's it, re- it credits Joe Duffy, right, in the end. But it also says translation adaptation, Stephen Paul. <laughs> this is the weirdest mm. book we've covered in that regard where there's like – a translator, another translator, an adapter of the translation, and then an adapter of the uh, adaptation, which is like there's four people <laughs> in the credits for this edition of English Akira, which I think is like speaks to a really storied and interesting publishing history. I think mm-hmm. it's very interesting. And this isn't a knock either on the letterer of this edition. I think he, Evan did a good, uh, Evan Hayden, uh, who lettered Panorama Island, by the way, mm-hmm. did a pretty good job. Not a pretty good job. I think he did a good job on this, but there's something about you know that old school studio proteus style lettering that like the first time you encounter a book that that sticks in your mind so i thought that was really interesting and deb fascinating thing for me is it isn't revealed that k is being mind controlled although maybe you can pick it up maybe you can't 
And that would have been four or five chapters of the manga. Cause and this is the other thing. This was serialized and like in kind of, I've, I played a fun game while I was reading it to see if, where, if I could figure out where the chapter breaks were. And it's like, not only are you, not only are you trusting that your readers are going to be able to sort of pick up on these little clues, you're doing it over five chapters. Like you're just like not giving it away. And it's just for you as an author to have like a nice sleight of hand reveal, you know, 80 pages in it's revealed that Kay's being uh, controlled by the children. Uh, I thought that was really ballsy on his part. And that also yeah. fed into my, my idea that maybe he had actually written out the rest of the series more or less, that like he had roughed it out at this point. So it was really cool to see all those things when I was reading, when I was reading this. So the question I want to ask you all about this one that I found, thought was really interesting is, Deb, you brought up that this is a series uh, in relation to volume one, when we were in the first episode, that this is a series that is actually noted for having really strong female characters. Whereas Chip was sort of like, you can tell this was written in the 80s. Literally, the only woman is a damn in distress and there's no other ladies with characters. I thought this was the <laughs> volume where the female characters started to come a lot more to the fore. Like, mm-hmm. Kay, is all, like even, Kay is a badass, and she, but even though she's been controlled, but she's been controlled by another female character, which I think is really interesting. You get introduced to Kay's aunt. I think her name is Chioko. Mm-hmm. Yep. ends up being the like big, awesome, muscle-bound lady that really dominates the second half of the book. And then obviously Lady Miyako, the fortune teller, who is really introduced in a sort of mysterious way. I think that these are these introductions are starting to show that the world is much larger, that women are going to play a huge role in the second half, especially because Kaneda's literally experienced no character development at all. Like he's still just like a <laughs> yeah. goofball who's just shooting at anything that he can uh, badly. And he still thinks he can make a move on Kay, right? Yeah. Right? And yeah. That's, that's great. And it, it's really clear that she doesn't. She's not having it. She's not into it. <laughs> did you did you feel like that was being developed, or do you still think that's a crit, like a problem with this series that we that we sort of talked about in the first volume? Sorry, is that something that you guys picked up on as well? That like they're actually starting to bring female characters to the fore in this, or is this just me? Uh, I didn't pick up on that progression, but having number volume two assigned made me realize that I don't think of the series in volumes because I thought Chioka was going to be in this volume actually because there's a really good bit where she punches someone through a lifeboat. Uh, in volume, <laughs> but I think that it's sort of like in volume two. Every series is still building its characters and still building its voice. Mm. Nine times out of ten, uh, like the Colonel, I think it's a lot more depth. He's less of a fashion. He's still literally like a very clean cut, you know, military guy. Yeah, but yeah. he's got depth. Like he's not just a you know blind fascist. He's just you know mostly there. Yeah. We meet, we learn a lot about Kay. Like we we knew she was capable, but now she's basically a, like a super spy, or maybe a regular spy. I don't know from spies. <laughs> Even Tetsuo, I think, like you see what he does with power, and it's become pettier and pettier as his yeah. forehead gets bigger and bigger. So <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit to a, a real nice like ooh moment when he forces the colonel to his knees and then to the ground and then just steps on his neck and yeah oh teenage me liked that teenage me liked that (laughs) (laughs) i i do have one short anecdote about the comic and the movie Mm. so there's a famous part in the movie where Kaneda's like you know you're the king of the mountain but it's all garbage in japanese he said he basically calls tetsuo a big bald-headed bastard or a big four-headed bastard (laughs) and i can't decide which i like more you know (laughs) but anyway chris uh women in akira i think that it started 
kind of where a lot of these stories start and it's going to get better as it goes on. Mm. I think that that's the case, but I guess Chip, your, your look tells me you didn't, you weren't feeling it. No, no. My, my look is the fact that I, I didn't notice it, but mm. I did notice the lack of representation in the first volume. So that automatically means the second volume is better. <laughs> right. Cause if, if I, if I don't notice it, that means they must be doing it better. Cause yeah. it, but yeah, it's very rare that I just read a book and go, wow, great representation all around in this book. Yeah, because that should be the default, right? Yeah. Either they're doing it better or you got worse as a person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> see, there we go. Well, you never is, know. The show is about picking on Chip. It's not about picking on me. Oh, see, now we're back to Chris. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, we're picking on. <laughs> no, we're not picking on anybody. Okay. <laughs> Especially not me. Uh, <laughs> I have so I have like a million things I want to say about this, but I actually did want to get into the color a little bit because I think the color is a lot stronger this volume too. Chip, what did you think? Well, like Chip's color corner. I mean, the only color there's like there's like three color pages in mine for the yeah. story, and they're fine, but they're not good. <laughs> really that double page spread of Akira coming up out of the out of the containment you still you're still not on board eh it's so i mean it's it's amazing that in the black and white there's such a great feeling of depth and in this there's no feeling of depth like there's just mm-hmm. an absolute lack of painting skill here except for just being able to blend some colors just i don't get it i don't get it what did you think because you've got the Kodansha edition now as well, right? You've got the hardcover yeah. there? Yeah, the hardcover. What did you think about the panels that were rearranged on the inside as the end papers and then colored? And don't worry, folks, we're going to put these in the show notes so you can see that. I mean, so, 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 so that's, that was better because they're just, they're still utilizing the black and white line work, which you can't mm-hmm. go wrong with. They're not colored choices that I would ever go with. And then we have the recap stuff. Which I kind of expected the recap pages to look better because they're kind of divorced from the poor painting uh, styles that are normally associated. But I, I don't like those either. <laughs> I will say the recap pages on the hardcover edition with all the you know text wrapping around the different shapes yeah. Yeah. is incredibly hard to read. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, some weird, weird color choices, weird layout choices. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel bad even like cr- criticizing this wonderful gift that was sent to me. <laughs> but I will say, like, the outside is fantastic. Like, the actual package is great. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I ditched the dust cover almost immediately on any book. Oh, that's, that's amazing. But yeah, yeah. The, the, the actual, the, the hardcover is, is quite lovely. They do a thing on the back cover of the uh, hardcover where it's Tetsuo appearing on a security camera sort of a situation. It's almost like a magic eye. Like if you look at it too close, it doesn't look like anything, but then you pull it away and you're like, oh, it's Tetsuo uh, from the cover. <laughs> I actually, well, it's funny. Oh, I was yeah. thinking like a Nintendo game, but that also oh, makes actually, sense. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get that this is the design from the original Japanese edition. Ooh. Yeah. The, yeah. the front and back cover. And then what you see on the actual book itself, I think is for this edition. Yeah, yeah, that feels that feels more modern. This this feels like a slightly dated, but it's dated in a fun way. Yeah. <laughs> so I have the graffiti designs hardcovers uh, for my color editions. Oh my! Which are the Marvel versions, and they actually don't have that opening painting of uh, like Akira's pit or bulb or whatever we're calling it. <laughs> His uh, pit bulb. 
Chamber. Yeah, chamber. There we go. <laughs> uh, but it does have one, two, three other illustrations and a couple of illustrations on the back cover that aren't in the Kodansha edition. Oh, oh wow. Can you? Uh, a couple of paintings. Yeah. I could also. Oh. Oh. Wow. Are those in the Akira Club book or something? They must be. They might be the colors to like the like the Tonkoban edition or like the slightly thicker versions. Oh, you know what those are? Those are the Marvel covers. Those are the covers to the Marvel issues that have been colored by Steve Olive. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Interesting. I guess they didn't like the opening uh, painting either. I guess, I guess, yeah. I guess I'm just too aligned with Marvel these days. So I, <laughs> this is on me. They finally whipped it into you. <laughs> yeah. On the first episode, you were maybe going to go back, Chip, and uh, watch the anime, and I assume that did not happen. You're right; it did not. So I have a question <laughs> about the anime, about maybe uh, for Deb and David who've seen it. I actually, more so even than the first volume, experienced pretty severe uh, cognitive dissonance reading this because it's this exact same sequences that are in the anime but in different settings and it was mm-hmm. like i was watching i was rereading something and having it happen and it was like my memory was betraying me because i remembered these exact sequences <laughs> but especially the bit with soul uh with the with the satellite shooting mm. down yeah it's place at olympic stadium it doesn't take place on top of the akira or like on top of where the original ground zero was yeah so for me that sequence was so disorienting but also things like the, the battle in the, the kids' playroom doesn't quite happen the same way in this as it does in the Get, in the movie. Because the, there's not the, the, the teddy bear bleeding and stuff like that. Yeah, there's no nightmare. There's <laughs> yeah. um the, the the anime and the manga are at this I think at this point from volume two on becomes two completely different beasts. Mm-hmm. Like Akira in the movie never shows up. Akira is just like a brain in a jar. Yeah, yeah. that's the other big thing. <laughs> that, yeah. You you watch that whole movie and you get literally a half second clip of Akira in a flash, like a series of images that are flashing at the end of the movie. This is just like, oh, volume two, he's on panel. This is what Akira is. Uh, the rest <laughs> of it is just that's, a huge that's so funny. That's so funny because like I, I watched the movie, but like a long, long time ago, and I don't remember any of it. But mm-hmm. going into this, every time they talked about Akira, I was just like. What does he look like? Like I couldn't conjure it because I kept thinking like I, I I understood the other characters from my faint memories of the movie, but I thought it was my my brain was broken. But I guess it's not. No, he's not. I remember the seeing the anime at, at first and thinking this makes no damn sense. The <laughs> ending, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, but then I went. Then when I finally got to read all of the manga, I thought, okay, now I get it. But like this is so different. Yeah, um, and I think that's partly why I like it so much. Is like I love the movie too, mm-hmm. and like the manga, the movie has two different dubs, yeah, ah. which they finally put on one Blu-ray. So now I have the dub of my childhood and the uh, technically better one. Oh, <laughs> I just ordered the 4K. Yeah, it's oh. amazing, and there are so many scenes like Chris was saying where I can see it in my head. I can hear Tetsuo descending the platform with like the Gano Yamashiro Gumi music in the background. Mm. Uh, I can hear Kay's voice in, you know, whichever dub you choose, but <laughs> they're doing so many different things that it's almost like reading an alternate universe story. Yeah. yeah. Like each version of Akira is built for the medium that it's being told in. Mm. Mm. And I think that makes this such an interesting read for me, but it really was a little unsettling because it was like, it was like having your memory, the faults in your memory being pointed out in real time because you have <laughs> a complete 
memory of these sequences of events that are just a little bit different. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's hard to explain, but I've never encountered this with any media I've consumed before, except for this. And it was really like cool, <laughs> but also like, oh, this is really a little difficult. I bet it would be like hearing a remix to a song you love through uh. like your next door neighbor's wall, you know, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> where you're like, I know this, but I don't um, like the laser stuff that happens in like the last 20 minutes of the movie. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't happen there. But it's no. interesting because it, this is it, this it, both of these works are completely mm-hmm. within his control. Mm-hmm. He yeah. he directed the anime. Yeah, so these are you know, his choices. These are all these are. It's not like some some anime anime producer came or some Hollywood director came and changed it. He made this <laughs> make it more toyetic. Yeah. I do like the idea of some like hot shot producer coming in. No way, you're gonna set this at the Olympic site, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Which really works, actually. I got to be honest. It's really good. But I guess, I guess, yeah, you do get different, very, very, very different feelings from it. And it just feels like there's so, it's so much richer here, but you can't escape just how complete an experience watching the Kira anime is with not just motion and color, but also the, the sound, the music, the both sets of dubs I actually really love. Like I like are, have such yeah, a same. spot for me. The it's just there's a Ninja Turtle in the classic dub, and I yeah, love the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry for the fo- readers who don't know. Do you want to do you want to tease that out a little bit? Uh, the person who voices Kaneda also voiced was it Leo or Raph? It's been so long. Either way, either the coolest Ninja Turtle or the least cool Ninja Turtle voices <laughs> the main character of Akira. <laughs> I feel like it's I feel like it's got to be Raph, but yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And it's for people that. Go- you didn't really maybe notice it at the time when you watched, I mean, I'm the exact right age to have watched Akira, you know, bootlegged and then to watch the turtles and then go back and watch Akira. And you never know, you never put it together. And so you rewatched it as, you know, someone in their teens, but it's very weird for like the first hour. Like it doesn't go away because the turtles are, you know, etched into your brain with a laser. <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, but didn't, yeah. didn't Akira the movie come out before Akira the manga ended? Yeah, it came out partway through the run because I think the finale of the manga was delayed because, like, making a hand-drawn, almost two-hour animated movie is a lot of work. <laughs> That's just that blows my mind because, like, the one thing I kept thinking about when I was reading this volume was each one of these pages should have taken minimum a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I know there are assistants and things like that, but even still, like to maintain this level of quality throughout. Like there just aren't bad drawings in here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how he did it. I, I, I can tell you. And it was, I was reminded about this because Deb uh, mentioned it on. Um, so the most recent episode that has aired as we're recording this episode is the journal of my father episode, Jiro Taniguchi. And Deb mentioned a couple times, Oh, his book zoo and winter is, is also another thinly veiled autobiography about how he became a manga artist. So I went and reread that because I was like, oh, Deb mentioned a bunch of times and I feel like I'm not sure I remember it. I'll give it a read. And it really is just about like the last half of the book is about him becoming a manga artist. And it's just awful. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> awful. Like it's not a bad book, but like what he describes is like he basically goes in for a tour of the studio and they immediately put him to work and they're like, we're behind on deadline and we've got to get this done tonight you want to be a manga artist, sit down, like sit down and start working. And he just works for like eight hours starting at 11 PM crashes at the studio and falls apart. And is like, yes, this is what I want to do. And it's like, yeah, the, 
at that time he's doing he's working for a guy who's doing a weekly serial so four four to five installments a month plus an extra monthly serial plus illustrations and things like that and it's like the lead dude and his three and he's the now the third of three assistants and they're just cranking out 110 120 130 pages of manga a month at like you know not akira quality because i think very few things <laughs> are akira quality but absolutely like at a really high quality and it's just are you willing to kill yourself for this job and are you will are you really willing to make a, a full-on career of this and keep doing it and i think we're starting to see that a lot more mangaka are not willing to to do that are not willing to you know like risk their lives i think Miura sensei the guy who did berserk passing away last month has really opened up people's eyes to like yeah you can get beautiful art you just can't get it on this schedule and maybe you've got to give everyone a little bit of a break you can see that's the worst thing is that you don't unless you're an artist i don't know that you see the labor on these pages of akira you just see a literally a perfect piece of art <laughs> you know what i mean yeah it doesn't look yeah. labored over or worked over or like whatever it just looks exactly like it's supposed to to me and maybe i'm wrong and this was created in an era where there wasn't really digital yeah. drawing yeah. tools this yeah. is all pen and ink, zipatone, using an exacto blade to like make that little shading uh, on the zipatone. Yeah, white, white out. Even like when he makes those like those scenes where it looks like they're having this, like they're getting the psychic attack and it looks like double. Mm-hmm. That's probably a, a Xerox machine and transparencies. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I love the analog feeling on these pages. So when Chip's saying this takes a week, I believe him. This I I've. I've done this kind of work <laughs> on pen and paper, and it's work. Yeah. You, you, you don't you don't have the luxury of reusing very much stuff. If he's yeah. reusing anything, he probably did a Xerox copy, scaled it, pasted it on. I mean, I would love to see what the original pages look like. Yeah, same here. That would kill me. Yeah. But they're, it is not really what, what people do now. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> also, Cam Clark voiced Kaneda in Akira and Leonardo in Ninja Turtles. There you go. Who was ah. much cooler when I was a kid, but is kind of the cop of the crew now. But building on Chris and Deb's point, uh, moving on very quickly from that. Um, Tetsuo Ohara, the co-creator of Fist of the North Star, is an artist who understands the labor and like the toll it takes on your body. Mm. And he's older now. I think he's in his 50s. But either way, instead of like drawing comics month in, month out, he's opened a studio to help younger artists, like show them the techniques, share his experience mm-hmm. of being a creator for so long and like not destroying your body in the process, mm. but still making having like a very high level of uh, quality. Wow. So I think there's definitely like a change coming or a change in progress where mangaka and other artists are like realizing like we have to do this differently and yeah. we can still do it as good even though it's different. Well, like Kaiji number eight and uh, One Piece now are on every other week. Are they really? Oh, wow. I hadn't realized that. When did that happen? Within the last couple months. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I don't love the reasons why, but like. I like getting books frequently, but it's nice when the creators involved are, they have a life. I do not want Eiichiro Oda to die before we figure out the end of One Piece. Yeah, no way. (laughs) Keep that guy alive. He's got to live to the end of this because I will not forgive this world if he dies before the end of that manga. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Wow, Wow, that's great. 20 years of this. Mm -hmm. And he's building up to something and it's like, 
for God's sakes, I hope you wrote it down somewhere in case you get hit by a car tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't know and he's just like, oh, God, I hope I end up dying before I have to finish this. He's vamping, yeah. making it someone else's problem. Yeah. yeah. Oh, speaking of assistance, there's one thing I was, when I was going through um, all of the episodes, basically, noticed a thing I didn't bring up at the time, and it's in Naruto, when we read Naruto. Mm-hmm. I think it's the second or third chapter. It's a picture of mangaka Kishimoto Sensei surrounded by his assistants on the series, and they're all sort of dressed reservoir dro- dogs style. <laughs> realize, like you know, like we're so cool, we're doing this thing, and I didn't realize maybe what that was at the time when, when I was reading it, but it was this like acknowledgement on the printed page that like, yeah, this is like my name's on the cover and because that's what publishers want is what I've actually found out. But there's a, there are people working on this. Most of the time, these people go on to, you know, do their own manga and whatnot as well. So I think that's really cool. I'll throw mm-hmm. that image up. Are, up in the, show are the assistants ever actually credited? Sometimes. Sometimes. More and more often nowadays, I think. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Like I think most of the Shonen Jump stuff in like in the collected format will have a, a list for the assistants. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah, you can see right here. Kishimoto Sensei has has five assistants. We'll put this image in the, the show notes. But if you look at the back of, I think all the versions of Akira, there's a page that's like the staff of his sort of studio. What's it actually called uh, Mashroom <laughs> Young Magazine Mashroom, yeah. and it's got Koto Shizukai and Yasumitsu Suetake, and those are people who were probably his assistants. Like probably worked with him on this. There might have been other uncredited assistants as well. But I know a lot of people. I know Otomo worked with a lot of, of, of young creators is what I mm-hmm. really gleaned <laughs> from people. Satoshi uh, Kon. Satoshi uh, Kon, yeah. yeah. If you look at the Satoshi Kon manga, it's very looks very much like the Otomo work. Uh, yeah. Another guy who assistant. died way too young, too. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, in that Naruto book, is there an assistant named Mikio or something like that? Let me just pull that uh, image. Because one of his assistants from the very first volume ended up working on the spinoff Boruto. Mm. So like there was actually like a long, you know, relationship, uh, mentorship. I don't know what you would call that that was involved. But I forget which specific assistant. Kazisa, Takahashi, Ikimoto, and Yahagi. Oh, Ikimoto. Yeah. Ikimoto. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting seeing how assistants kind of absorb like the general house style for lack of a better phrase but then also have their own style they can work in like really smoothly yeah Yeah. it's really impressive i think there's there's pros and cons to this we've we've been talking a lot about this whole season actually about like how it's tough on mangaka and you know all the different things that are tough on mangaka but i think it's really interesting that the assistant system lets you hit these deadlines and hit, hit this pace and also alleviate some of the burden i know that like if you're listed as the penciler on a Marvel comic, and if you're lucky, even if you're lucky enough to get an inker, which that doesn't always happen these days, you're responsible, solely responsible for those 20 pages a month. And there's not usually a lot of extra money to be hiring people to do backgrounds or whatever. Chip, can you speak to that at all? Like, can you speak to the idea of like being the, like the sole artist on a book and the kind of pressures that brings versus being able to bring in assistance and things like that and having a system set up for that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never really been in that kind of system, like Marvel... Marvel's books have to come out on time. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but uh, a lot of them, like some of the ones I work on, aren't just 12 issues a year. They're 18 issues a year for a title. Mm-hmm. Not even just the 20 pages. 
it, it's tricky because you know back in the day when it was just like you know you know Kirby or Bushema where they're just like <laughs> penciling and passing it off to an inker uh, sometimes super quick super rough there's more pressure for more detail from the artist now and there's more pressure to ink your own work there's there's not a lot of Marvel artists that have inkers for the most part they're all working digitally or they ink themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's 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 burnout and there's body issues like in terms of like you know your neck your back your arm um yeah i don't know it's lousy it's shitty <laughs> it's no good. I, i've said it before like like comic art is is the hardest art job that there there is because you need to understand everything you need to understand architecture, anatomy, fashion, how to draw cars, and also how to tell the story on top of all that. And mm-hmm. then produce like several super high quality illustrations every day uh, on a page just to kind of keep your head above water. It's not a good system. But mm-hmm. I had a like piping hot take that I didn't tweet the other day mm. where I was going to ask how many... Ooh different pieces of art Leonardo da Vinci made and how many panels are in Watchmen. But I thought it would be too, uh, too rude to da Vinci. But like comics artists really do have to execute at a high level all the time mm-hmm. in a way that at a volume, I think that a lot of artists generally don't No, Yeah. Mm. Like, like before I did comics, I did a, a wide variety of uh, art jobs and comics is the culmination of all of them. Like mm-hmm. it just, it just is. And the fact that we're expected to like <laughs> do that <laughs> 10 hours a day, every day in order to get something in somebody's hands that they're going to read for five minutes is a little disheartening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even yeah. Otomo basically stopped doing manga and started doing movies. Mm-hmm. Was, was, you know, it, was it few, for him? Well, like, did he, no, he had a Akira? few after this, like he finished Akira. There was, um, mother Sarah that he just wrote and didn't draw. Mm-hmm. And there have been little one-shots, like he did like that Batman black and white story that recently oh, got yeah. reprinted. Yeah. But in terms of long series, I think this, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Good for I him. actually, I, I can <laughs> yeah. say this now, I, I double-checked. There's a book coming out called Akira Art of Wall, which is coming out, um, or was just announced uh, from Kodansha. And in it, Otomo gives his first interview about Akira in like maybe a decade, maybe two, like since it came mm. out, because it was like an anniversary project. And I got to edit the interview, which is really interesting. And I don't want to give it away, but like he talks about never wanting to make manga, (laughs) like not like this. Like before this, he only ever did short stories um, and he loves short stories. And so you could see that like this big thing was something that he never took on again and maybe wouldn't have taken on if he wasn't like super good friends and wasn't constantly invited with the people who were running the magazine that it was supposed to serialize in to give it a boost and to to get Mm -hmm. it going. And it's just like, yeah, he never went back to it. In fact, he he even was like, he f- still feels bad. It sort of implied that he took a week off, like he took an, an issue of, of, of the whatever off because he was like finishing up the movie and he was like, I just, I had nothing in me. Yeah. And to be honest, that <laughs> that's serious volume, burnout, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not in this volume, but um, these ones are all 20 page. The first chapter is 26 pages, if you want to count. And then after that, it's 20 page chapters all the way through. But as you get into volume six, where he's still got to hit, like there's still got to be a chapter of Akira in the magazine so that people buy the magazine. Some of those Mm -hmm. chapters are like eight pages or 12 pages. It's like one scene or two scenes. And it's really interesting, again, because you can't really tell sometimes where the 
the chapter break was in the original serialization. Like some of the some of the page to page cliffhangers are a little bit better than others, and maybe that's where the the breaks would have been. But like at the end of it, he's just like, "All right, this week it's a three pages. Like we're getting a scene. We're getting one scene, and that's that's a cure this week." <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think it's, that's interesting that that yeah. he that he was at this position to do that. Hmm. I mean, I think also Takihiko Inoue does that. Like he's mm-hmm. he's definitely taking himself out of the I'm going to publish something every week, every month. Mm-hmm. I, I posted in the chat, but there's an interesting example where the, the creator of Ajin in the ah. credits uh, gave credit to all to his assistants. By page. Was specific about which assistant drew what. Wow. In every volume? Yeah. Every volume. Wow. Or at least every volume where they credit the assistants. But to my memory, it was every volume. That's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. It, it felt like a little much as a reader. I was like, well, like, I like knowing they were there. <laughs> but every page is maybe yeah. overwhelming. But it is good credit. Like, you know, these people did the work and, you know, there's a ton of CG work on a book like Ajin as well. Yeah. Mm. But speaking of the pagination of Akira, something that's wild to me is that the page turns are different in the Marvel edition and the Kodansha edition. Oh. Like, if you look at page 148 to 149 of the Kodansha edition, mm-hmm. it's uh, Kaneda sitting and eating a bowl of rice and, like, talking to a dude. Mm-hmm. Those are on the same page, like, uh, the same leaf of paper in the hardcover that I have. Oh. So the bottom right pa- panel of the spread is, you know, Kaneda slurping food, and on the next page, you see him finally eating. Mm. And it makes me wonder, like, there's no double-page spreads in this. Like, the pagination... There's one with the uh, kind of the evacuation of the city. Yeah, at the mm. end of this volume. I wonder if Marvel put in like a sp- a facing page or something. Or mm-hmm. were there ads in those? Uh, no, there it's t- just there were there were chapter pages, chapter title pages uh, oh. in the original and Young magazine. So that might have done something to it. Yeah. By the way, those chapter title pages are collected in Akira Club, which is uh, the art book, and it has all of the chapter pages that were. Oh no, there's a double spread on two ninety two ninety three. Is that the city? Well, two fifty six, two fifty seven is the city. That's the spread there. Yeah. yeah. Two ninety two to two ninety three is when the 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 satellite hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love for you to count that up and see how they worked that out. We're doing comics forensics on manga explaining today. <laughs> And it's it's very effective, I, I, I will say. Yeah, yeah. obviously, you know, there's a good page flip, two ninety nine to three hundred with the arm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that felt pretty necessary. Yeah, interesting. And it's interesting that this book ends at this, uh, like, this is not the typical size of a manga volume, right? Mm-hmm. But, but that that it ends on that scene where his his arms blown off is like, oh, that's masterful. That's such a good cliffhanger. Yeah, it really is. I do feel sorry for anyone who doesn't read Katakana, though. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's also a very, you very. I've seen this type of cliffhanger in other things as well. Kind of the um, a male lead screaming in despair, and then like to be continued. Mm. And that doesn't happen that often in like North American entertainment. I think it feels like such an anime manga thing to me. Uh, it was mm. big on Evangelion. I think One Piece did an episode with it a couple times. Mm. But it's such a great dramatic moment. Yeah. But I think because there's no come up like, oh, how is he going to get out of this? It's just like, no, he is ruined. Like he just got shot by a space laser. 
<laughs> that he did. That he did. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, here's the here's the one I was looking for. There's a there's this chart that shows the the, the relationship between the jump mangaka and their work relations. Mm. Like who was an assistant to who. Oh, that's oh yeah, good. I saw that on Twitter. That was really cool. Yeah, let me let me pop that into the chat because it's pretty amazing. Let's see. Where's my window? Funny, I was just thinking the the one where they credit every little thing on the page. Yeah, the, uh-huh. the different assistants. I'm like that could have a a sinister reason behind it too, which oh. is to highlight when people have done a poor job of something. <laughs> Ooh, snap! <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's just like, oh yeah, you really cut corners on those trees in the background. Well, I'm going to point an arrow to those trees and say that you did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, just a royalty statement. <laughs> but I think one thing people pointed out about the lack of assistance in American comics is this is an apprenticeship, and mm. that and this really doesn't help up and coming comics artists in America learn mm-hmm. the craft. Yeah, there's also I mean there's a, there's a fair amount of ego probably in North American comics. Like I don't oh. think anyone wants to be an assistant. They th- what they want is like a quick opportunity to end up becoming their own kind of like hot comic artist. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it like the Japanese thing where it's like, if you're a sushi artist, you spend how many years slicing the daikon and sweeping the floors before you can actually touch a fish. <laughs> you got to pay your dues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so that's ingrained in the, the Japanese point of view about apprenticeships. Yeah, it, it, it might be like, I, I don't really just, I, I can't see that system working in North America unless like, like, if I lucked into an assistant who enjoyed drawing backgrounds for, like, a year, like, that would be <laughs> mind-blowing to me. Dave Sim did. Yeah, that's the thing. Dave Sim did. And, and look how that ended. Yeah, and then he <laughs> lost his mind, Chris. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that, that's the exception that proves the rule, I think. Like, Gerhard is, like... There's a really big conversation to be had here i would maybe maybe we'll do a special or something we'll bring some people in but like yeah you're kind of expected to just if you want to break into north american comics you're just supposed to eat shit you know what i mean like you got to work on something that you pay for yourself and put it out and serialize at your own expense whereas if you want to break into comics if you have any kind of aptitude there are always assistant jobs like you can always get on the job training paid usually not paid great this is not I can't in good conscience recommend anyone try to be an assistant to a mangaka in Japan yeah. or, and, or an animator for that matter. But uh, at least there's like, there's no work study for being a comic artist. Everyone's mm-hmm. self-employed, even though no one is technically like should be considered self-employed. It's, it's a real issue. And like, there are pluses and minuses. Like I said, I would love to, I would love to get into this. It, it explains why a lot of people maybe can't break, break into comics yeah. and it's an economic issue. It's absolutely, not opening up the industry that way. I think the country, well, I guess, including Canada, like the continent is so big compared yeah. to Japan as well, that it's a, like, you could move to Tokyo theoretically, but you can't yeah. really move to like New York and have a bunch of jobs waiting. But now yeah. with digital art, it's not as much of an issue, right? Like for example, yeah. Raina, Raina had a, had an assistant and she went on to do the babysitters club things, right? Like Gail Galligan. Nice. And yeah. then Gail Galligan's assistant went on to continue and then I think Brian Leomelli had his assistant, right? And yeah. then Jared, yeah. Jared went on to do his own thing. So the, I think the assistant thing is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's not just about getting paid. It's about getting connections. Like you get to meet your 
you're the person who you're assist being assisted with gets to know you, get to know the editor and the publisher. So you yeah. make connections and they trust you and they go, oh yeah, this guy can do the work, you know? Mm-hmm. And those kind of things don't happen. Half of this networking business is not just can you draw, which is what you can see from a portfolio review, but people also want to know how professional are you, yeah. how good mm-hmm. you are under pressure. And those things don't get show up in a portfolio review, but they mm-hmm. do get great word of mouth if you're an assistant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they do show up if you show up to the studio and they put you to work immediately and you don't complain. <laughs> Eight hours straight and crash on the floor. Also, shout out to shout out to Jason Fisher, who's who's Brian's assistant that you mentioned. Uh, Brian's assistant. He's a he's my friend, Jason Fisher. He's yeah. a good dude. So I just wanted to shout him out because he's he's awesome. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. He came with us to Japan. Remember? He did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was on one of the trips. There were like many forty trips. Canadian artists on that trip. I was there too. <laughs> <laughs> but the assistance thing, it's. In addition to being an in, like an apprenticeship, it's also a chance to see the business firsthand because mm, there are yeah. tons of things that go wrong when making anything that no one will mm. ever tell you about when you're like, oh, like what are some tips? Because they don't come to mind. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. uh, recently, I had an issue where a book was once, and I was like, oh no, I got to figure out how this happened, why this happened, and how to fix it. And I would never mention that to if I was like talking to kids at Savannah College of Art and Design or something. Because <laughs> yeah. why would that happen? You know? <laughs> but the day-to-day, you know, being just in the office, being able to hear the phone calls, like see the discussions, see the decisions being made, I think mm-hmm. it goes a very long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we got off track, but I'm not really surprised about that. I can bring it back on track very easily. <laughs> yeah. Akira influenced so many different artists that it's, it's interesting to look at what the artists who were there like assisting Otomo went on to do like Satoshi Kon, like really heartfelt, mm. amazing creator. I'm, I've been watching Paranoia Agent for the first time and oh, it's really? a similar thing where it's like, Oh, where's this going? But it's so well made that I trust you implicitly. Mm. Mm. Isn't that a nice feeling when you're, when you're like taking a piece of media where you just want to sit back and like, this is the person I trust and I'm going to go where they want me to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It happens so rarely. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I don't trust anyone. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> It's because you made a podcast with your three worst enemies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's good that he doesn't read the show notes. He doesn't see what we really say about him. Um, I, I, always, I always search for my name in the show notes. 100%. Fair, fair enough. This has been an interesting discussion of Akira Volume 2. I really appreciate this. And there's, it seems like we'll have lots to talk about when Akira Volume 3 rolls around in 28 more weeks or whatever it is. <laughs> Thank you very much all for your thoughts. It was a pleasure speaking with you. We're going to go to the break. And when we come back, we have a question from the audience, from you, the listeners. Stay tuned. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, (laughs) I could really use Current. (laughs) I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And we're back. I hope that was lucrative. This week's question is a question we actually just sort of answered before the break, but there was a little bit more to it and we wanted to maybe get into it. So this question comes in email from Luke Berger and he says, I just finished listening to your Beastars episode and was curious about everyone's comments on the art. You all talked about the Beastars creator being sort of a cartoonist slash auteur versus the writer-artist combo of Oishinbo. But I keep seeing at the end of manga volumes, the creators thanking several assistants, and you've mentioned previously that some assistants do backgrounds, inking, etc. So how much is really a manga cartoonist doing all the drawing, and how much do the assistants actually do? Could manga artists, manga volumes start ugly because it's just the creator, and then get better when they can afford more or better assistants? Long question short, what's the breakdown of duties between manga creators and their assistants, especially when getting chapters out on a weekly basis for some magazines? Are there manga creators sometimes doing all of the art, like some Western cartoonists? Really love the podcast thing. Wait for the next one, Luke. Thank you, Luke. That's a very interesting question. We answered some of that, I think. But yeah, I think we've all got some experience there. Deb, David, did you want to jump in on this one? Deb, you want to go first? <laughs> I can try. Yeah. I mean, I think there's. I think I've seen interesting examples of this. I've seen Naoki Urasawa basically focus on just drawing the people and the faces. And then he leaves everything, most of the rest of the finish. He'll pencil in the rest and leave the finishing touches to his assistants. Mm. But he's very definite about when I, the faces and the, the people is all me. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen examples of, say, like um, like Attack on Titan, which started out pretty rough. And <laughs> apparently as it got more successful, he got more assistance. And, I'm not, and maybe he got a little bit better, too. The other example I would, I, that comes to mind is Shigeru Mizuki. Mm. Shigeru Mizuki is, well, I mean, he, he, he died in, in his late 90s. And then towards the end, even though he was drawing manga, I have a, and his, his manga is really interesting because his characters are cartoony and the backgrounds are super detailed. Mm-hmm. I'm almost positive that none of that was drawn by him at the end of his <laughs> <Yeah>. life. Because <laughs> I've seen, I've seen uh, pictures of him drawing at the end of his life. And they're barely, they're barely like, um, they're like Buddhist, Buddhist calligraphy squiggles of <laughs> Kitaro, you know, like yeah. they're super they're freeform and gestural, gestural. <laughs> so I have a feeling he almost outsourced almost all of it mm. at, at a certain point because he was an old guy and, you know, he got, he just didn't need to. I mean, I think one of his assistants went on to draw the art for the Yokai book that Matt Alt did, Matt and Hiroko. Oh, cool. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that was the case. That's cool. Yeah. So he went. He, he a lot of he a lot of his assistants went on to other work as well, and I think that's true. But I think that was probably the most dramatic example where I could say, "Yeah, I don't think that was him." <laughs> <laughs> How about you, David? There were a few I've heard of that are like none were the primary artist, for lack of a better phrase, kind of phones it in. But maybe a few where the publisher knows the artist isn't as strong as they need to be yet. So they're present with an experienced assistant, um, sort of like on old Marvel books, like you might get like a really all-star inker on mm. a new artist to make sure that everything, all the storytelling is tight. Yeah. But like for Gogol 13, it's been running for 52 years 
and it took its first hiatus during the pandemic. And Takao Saito, the creator of it, is 80-something years old. But I'm pretty sure at that age, like he has to be using assistance for a lot of the work. Oh, he is. He's, he's pretty open about it. Yeah, there's just like a defined style too. Like you can draw in this style. Like this is, it's like drawing The Simpsons or something, you know? Mm. A lot of manga creators that hit that age, especially when we're talking about age and sort of aging into the manga street, people mm-hmm. like Mizuki, Mizuki had Mizuki Pro, Mizuki Productions, where he had a, a team of people because, you know, the demands on his time are really interesting because all of a sudden he's super famous and his characters are super famous. Someone's got to approve the animation. Someone's got to draw the art for, you know, the. <laughs> lunchbox or whatever kind of a thing like you need people that can produce this art and this one person at the center of this even Mm -hmm. at at full steam his popularity has been eclipsed by his ability to hit what everyone needs from him and so bringing in other people is just it's just something that's done tezuka had mushi pro which was like his team of people tezuka productions as well and saito uh, uh, saito tako has like a has has a whole company as well that's dedicated to him and his productions and his work so I think it's that there's two things there. One is like you age into the industry and you're just not able to produce like you could when you were, you know, a young buck doing <laughs> hundred pages mm-hmm. a month or whatever. And so you attract people just by the strength of your work that frankly learned how to draw from drawing your work. You know what I mean? Like grew up with your comics and drew like you. And that happens, you know, there's, there's a lot of that I, I see in a less direct way in North American comics, the people that are drawing comics draw like their heroes and maybe they eventually grow into their own style and things like that. But on younger creators, which I think is what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Like comics is a really uncomfortable mix of art and commerce and it's always uncomfortable. It is never comfortable. So you're making art. Absolutely. And I actually truly believe that, but you're making reproduced commercial art. Like it has to, it has to sell because if you're making comics just for yourself, which I think there is more and more valid as a career choice, there are other ways to put it out there than trying to sell a product. You know what I mean? So I think a company will step in and go, you're not quick enough. We need someone to like come in and assist you with the artwork. You're not good enough just yet, but you've got an amazing idea, but people, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you don't want to be a writer artist team. Maybe you really want to draw this. I think a good example is, um, what's, what do I want to say? One punch man. So, mm-hmm. uh, one who is the name of the guy who created one punch man created it as a web comic and he's not a very technically skilled artist he also created the series mob psycho but he draws really interestingly really cool you know what i mean like it's inventive and neat and whatever people you know the, the shonen jump team the jump plus team really liked his idea for one punch man or like we want to do this we're going to give you literally the best artist who isn't doing anything right now <laughs> he's going to adapt your stories into you know comics and one punch man is one of the best drawn manga frankly that i think there is like i think it's very different in style from something like Akira or something like the other very detailed manga that like, like a bride story or, or, or whatnot, but beautiful and inventive, like really mm-hmm. it hits all the formalist buttons that I like in art. I don't think that project is lesser because it's not drawn by the dude who started it as a web comic and who isn't the best technical artist. I think that they made it into a more commercial product and once it was successful, yeah, they went back and adapted his other web comic MPD psycho, which he can't, Again, looks the no. same and almost didn't get licensed in English because it looks so ugly. But then mob did, psycho, mob no psycho, yeah, mob psycho, yeah. MPD psycho is the other one. Oh, sorry, mob psycho. Mob psycho. <laughs> yeah, Chris. But they're Jeez. both published by Dark Horse, so I can see the I can see the issue. When I get the final file from you, I'm going to dub mob in wherever I said MPD. And no <laughs> any of but I think, yeah, I think there's there's commercial concerns, and I think people get 
really hung up on who's really drawing the art that I'm seeing. And it's like, man, if the dude's name's on it and he, you know, he's crediting it and everyone involved in the process feels good about it, then it's that dude. People have had assistants, people have had trainees, people have had, have been mentored people for years and honestly gone on to support their careers and push them up and bring them up. And the thing is, in North America, that system doesn't exist. You got to fight for every scrap of credit you can get. Whereas in Japan, there is a system to like actually bring you up if you, you know, if you can hit the mark and do whatever. And it's, Uh, yeah, you know, Uh, it's a different consideration. All of this just reminds me of uh, the ultimate system in North America, which is Jim Davis uh, and (laughs) Paul's Incorporated and his Garfield Empire. Yep. I mean, he's if it got, works, it works. Yeah, he's got a lot of people drawing Garfield for him. Mm. And they love it. <laughs> At this point, he could just like grab all the Garfields and then just, just repurpose them. Like just like grab a Garfield <laughs> from five years ago, put him in position, yeah. size it, flip it, and then put a word balloon. Suddenly, Garfield is Fumetti. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 suspect, I suspect that's what's happening at this point. But yeah. But on the One Punch Man front, and kind of related, one thing that can't be understated is that even though one's not like technically a great draftsman, uh, his sense of storytelling is really good. Mm-hmm. Like in terms yeah, of calling absolutely. shots, in terms of setting up stakes. And I think that sort of gives uh, Yusuke Murata, the artist of One Punch Man, like the perfect uh, landing strip, whatever the opposite takeoff <laughs> strip. Jumping off yeah. point? Yeah, there we go. Something. Runway? Runway. Runway, that's it. Uh, to do some am- truly amazing drawings, truly amazing setups, it's just a really good superhero comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the for the record, I'll never use an assistant. Ah, mm. <laughs> I just won't. I thought Zadarsko was just full of all your assistants, just doing all the stuff you didn't want to do. It's true. The closest I've come is I have a, co- a color flatter to block mm. out the, the shapes for me. So when I go to color, it makes it easier. I think that might be the one area in North American comics where we actually have assistance. If you look at fighting as assisting the colorist, yeah, but it's less an apprenticeship and more, can you do this before the deadline kind of a thing? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't have assistance because of this, my reason for making comics isn't commercial. Mm. Like if it's not me on the page, then like I, I've had instances doing Marvel stuff where somebody else has lettered my comic, and even mm. that feels weird. Mm. Like that does, just doesn't feel like it's my comic anymore. Because someone else is putting physically putting your words on the page, and you aren't putting your words. Well, I mean, I think you'll agree since you are, are a letterer as well that there's an art to lettering. There absolutely is. Oh my god! And I'm not very good at it. I think we'll agree <laughs> on that as well. But. It's me doing it. Like, it's me making a thing. Like, I wouldn't work on a painting and then at the end be like, yeah, would somebody come in and, and, and do a couple of the fine details here? Or, like, like it just doesn't make sense to me as as uh, as somebody's personal art. Hmm. Murakami, Takashi Murakami, gets a lot of shit for using assistants because he works in the fine art world and mm-hmm. he has a studio like Warhol and he produces a lot of stuff. And he has people come in that'll like he'll block out a whole illustration you know he'll do the rough and then he'll block it out and then he'll have people actually lay down the color and lay down the the different processes and things that have to go into someone making his art and it really gets people riled up actually i've I've done Uh, that i've had that job oh really really yeah yeah i was uh, an illustration assistant at an old illustration studio in toronto and Mm. and the artist would basically take the the photos of his models and 
and uh, and basically give them to me to blow up and transfer onto canvas, and then mm-hmm. I would have to block in block in the the basic colors on it, and then he would go in and he would do the rendering on it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, again, that's a commercial venture. I think for illustration, it's like all right. Like I think who was it? it was like the painter who did like maybe it was like the Obama presidential portrait. Oh, the shepherd fairy. Yeah. It turns out they have like a, a whole bunch of assistants that do like a ton of the work on his paintings. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, sure. I mean, that's a, that's a commercial job. Like you're hired to do this. It's basically a giant illustration gig doing the portrait of the president. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, that was pop artists, right? I mean, like, who's the guy who did the big balloon animals in metal? Yeah, Jeff Koons. Oh, Jeff Koons. People hate him. (laughs) (laughs) People hate him, but he's like, I mean, that's not a a road I would ever go down because, you know, that's fine art. But in terms of, like, if you're paid to do a gig and you have to get that gig done in time, like, all right, yeah, you, you do what you need to to get it done. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like with comics, it's like it is hard because there is the deadline pressure, mm-hmm. obviously. And you know, when I was working in a studio with a bunch of artists, sometimes people would chip in to kind of help somebody finish a page. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would, I would never kind of allow that on my work. I don't think. <laughs> and it's it's not even the, like my work's not that good, <laughs> but it's my <laughs> but it's but it's my work. You're and too like, modest. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I mean, like compared to a lot of my friends. But it's still it's my work and it's 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 my body of work and I don't hmm. I don't I don't see it as a medium for for myself anyways to have other people get their fingers in my pie. Makes sense to me. But I would also argue like some people have said like lawyers, for example, right? Lawyers have an upward have a ceiling of how much money they can make because there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean that's I don't consider uh, lawyering an art form. I don't know. No, no, and I know, but I'm just saying, like, with, 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 when you're, if you're a comics creator, there is an upward limit to how yes. much you can produce because your body and your mind can only do so much before you get burnt out and sick yeah. and mm-hmm. whatever. So yeah. in order to extend the life of your creativity, you, you, t- you pass along the things that don't take as much mind space yeah. or mm-hmm. don't, don't require just your creativity or your touch to yeah. people who, who are willing to help you. Yeah, for sure. Like I don't, I, I have an accountant and a bookkeeper and a lawyer, like, exactly. and they're, 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 but they're, they're outside the purview of the actual art. Right. Mm. Yeah. But they let you preserve your creativity and your, your energy for what matters most. Yeah. Yeah. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. I think a really telling thing about this is whenever like a popular manga goes on hiatus or not hiatus, whenever it finishes, uh, the creator will be like, all right, I'm out for like two years, y'all. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to live my life. And then they almost always come back with like a short story, like a graphic novel or a couple single chapters. Burn the yeah, Witch. After, yeah, Burn the Witch. Uh, uh, Kishimoto did it with the Naruto epilogue one-shot graphic novel. Mm. Otomo even did it after doing, I think, the short piece movie. He was like, yeah, I'm going to do a couple of you know short comics. I think only one of which came out. But it says a lot about the wear and tear that a long project will put on you and also about the freedom that comes with having a smaller project you can just do yourself or with like a very small team yeah Mm. i mean i I may have said it here but when i finished sex criminals and people would ask me what i was what i was going to do next i said take a hammer to my drawing hand so i never have to draw another (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
the ever quotable Chip Zdarsky. I know. Guess, guess, what I'm, guess what I'm doing next week? I'm starting to draw a new comic. Oh, oh my exciting. goodness. Yeah. Oh. So it's like, you just, you, you just need that, that space, that time. I always say, yeah. and I, I probably have said it on here since we've done 25 episodes, that comic artists, to, to be a comic artist, you have to have a short-term emotional memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have to forget that feeling of what it was like to just try and push through and draw that previous issue. Mm-hmm. Like you just need a couple of days and then you go, Hmm, a new script. Hmm. This looks like it'd be fun to draw. Like, yeah, you're, you're idiots. We're all idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, this has been manga. Season two. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We have to pick books, but yeah, I thought that was a good note. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luke, for your question. I have no idea if that answered it or not, but <laughs> I feel like you got more information than you possibly could have bargained for. So that's pretty good. One of those uh, answers has to work. <laughs> As we've hinted, as we've hinted, this is the last, well, this is technically the last official episode. We're going to do an episode 26 of Among Explaining Season 1. 26 is going to be a sort of a recap of the, the one-year anniversary, <laughs> but it has, it's only been half a year, so I don't know. I don't, I'll figure out the text on that by the time we actually get live on it. Then we're going to restart the first week of September with our, our next book, our next book, which is Phoenix, picked by the, the fine folks at the Osama Tezuka Facebook group for Chip. That'll be season two, episode one. It'll be the first week of September. Um, but we're going to need more books. We got we to announce more books so that people can get more books in. And we need to take this break, frankly, because all I hear in, in social media, in the comments, in the direct messages right now is, I really love it, but I'm so behind. I have to keep I have to <laughs> find these books and then read them. And then listen. I listen to the episodes once I can. It's like, we're going to give you a full month to catch up on this. So get your books from the library or buy them or order them or whatever. And we'll start again in September with a book that's currently digital only. So you got no excuse. You could just download it to your phone right now from the Viz store. Let's give these people, let's give these fine folks three more volumes of manga to to get ready to, to read for the first four weeks of September. All right. Akira Volume 3, Akira Volume 4, Akira <laughs> Volume 5. We're done. I think we're finishing when we get to Akira 6 and Domu. So let's not pick those quick, All right. uh, just in case. But yeah, well, you guys have your your picks ready? Got an idea. All right. Well, you spoke mm. first, and Deb only thumbs up. So you have to suggest Crap. your time first. What do you got, David? <laughs> so we talked a lot about how it's hard to see artistic progression when you read just one volume of a manga series, mm. which makes sense. You know, I get it. So I was thinking we could read several chapters from one person's career and then oh. the most recent volume that they've done. Interesting. Okay. And the artist I have in mind is Sutomo Nihei, whose mm-hmm. most recent work is, uh, all of his stuff is hard to say, Aposims, I believe is how you pronounce it. Yeah. But prior to that, he worked on Blam, which is spelled Blame with an exclamation point, Noise, which was a prequel to Blam, Abara, Biomega, and Knights of Sidonia. And most of this is in English. Uh, I think Noise might be in like a Blam one-shot or something like that. But I, what I think we can do, since... Chapter one is free of a lot of series online, thanks to very kind publishers and smart marketing people. We'll just read a bunch of chapter ones and then read volume one of Episems and see what we think of how this man's artist progressed from 1998 to 2020. All right. Okay. And it, it has progressed and changed quite a bit. So yeah. It should be interesting. And he, I feel like I should at least pitch Episems the series. But it's sort of hard to explain if you haven't read his other stuff. 
give it a try because I don't know what it's about. Like, it's about transforming robots, people fighting each other on a distant planet. I'll have to show you pictures. The drawings will sell it better than the words ever can. But it's like a typical Nihei work where his stuff, it, there's a lot of room to breathe. Like there's mm. maybe 200 pages of dialogue in Blam, and it's like six omnibus volumes. Uh, and this is the same where it's very kind of airy, uses a very fine line, very European looking line. Mm. And I think it'll be a fun time. He's a really interesting artist. He came to San Diego Comic Con a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He's very funny. But very deadpan. Uh, I love it already. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, was originally he studied to be an architect. I can totally see it. <laughs> yeah. So you can see that element in there. So there's a lot of interesting things to see about him. So I, I think that's uh, a great choice. Cool. Mm. Chris, I'm going to let you go next because what I pick next is going to depend on what you pick. <laughs> oh. oh. Because oh. I want to make sure there's some balance. What a game. Okay. There will. This be is like balance. playing Uno. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about Denpa Publishing. They're the guys who are doing Kaiji, Made in Railways. We've sort of talked about it at length. And I wanted to actually pick one of their books for a while now. And I didn't want to pick one of those two because they're the obvious choices because we already mentioned them. And I wanted to like do something a little different. So the book I wanted to pick is called An Invitation from a Crab. And mm. it is uh, by an author named Panpanya. And it has a really weird publication history. It is a very rare sort of North American manga translation. And I think it'll be really interesting to talk about. It's um, it's sort of magic realism. It's about a, you know, a young person in a claustrophobic, rundown, sort of pan-Asian town who discovers a crab and follows its lead. And it leads to this like very surreal series of, of things. It's really different than anything else we've read. And we could talk a lot more about the way in which it's different during the episode <laughs> or maybe before, but yeah, I wanted to do something that was unlike anything we'd done in the first season. And this is the one that I sort of landed on uh, invitation from a crab by Panpania, published by Denpa. Is it a contained volume? Oh, it is. It is a one volume book just for you. All right. All right. Cool. <laughs> it's not even a paradise kiss one volume where it's actually secretly <laughs> five volumes in one. It's just like 200 pages. You'll be fine. All right. All right. Time. Perfect. Them. Okay. So based on what we got here, we have uh, some sci-fi, we have some art comics. So I figure let's throw something in that's populist. <laughs> that's <Ooh>. popular. <laughs> and is all, but it's also quite fun and well done and well drawn. It is the Eisner-nominated Spy Family by Tatsuya mm. Endo. Mm. Uh, I think it's one, it's really well drawn. But also that it's it's such an interesting high concept story that hooks you in from the beginning. It's mm. basically about a a spy. His codename is Twilight, and he's assigned to, uh, I guess, get the get the dirt on this particular uh, politician. But to do that, he has to f- get close to that politician by way of his son. And to do that, he needs a a child to go to the same school as this politician's son. So, and this is all very convoluted. So what he has to do is he has to create a family. Right. So he gets his, his wife, who's a very pretty, beautiful woman, and a daughter who is adopted. He finds this girl. And, but the thing is that none of them are who they seem they are. Now, the guy is a spy. His wife is an assassin. 
<laughs> and his daughter can read minds. And she's the only one that knows that both the father is a spy and the mother is an assassin. All right. Okay. So there's all kinds of like high cons. There's all kinds of mix-ups and uh, mis and like these op- these situations where they almost kind of find out their each other's secret, but don't. All right. So million dollar question: Is it a standalone or is this the first volume? We're only going to read the first volume. You only need the first volume. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, Deb really knows how to play the game because Chris's sounds interesting. Artsy, David sounds like a lot of David sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> so Deb wins this time. Nice, because she knows to come in third and listen to what the other two have <laughs> said. Very, very well done. So after that, I'm I'm, I'm interested in 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 the the art of uh, David. So that'll be second. And then we'll round it out with a nice, a nice solitary volume, which will be like the dessert mm. with Chris's pick. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, Phoenix and Spy Family is going to be a good time. Yeah, All right. And then the collected works of Tsutomu Nihei will be, uh, <laughs> and then Pampanya. Yeah, it's a that's a that's a pretty good mix of All right. the first four episodes. I like that. Perfect. I have a bit of a bit of a little surprise. I'm going to actually interview the translator of. Invitation from a Crab, who translated Pampanya. Uh, his name's Ko. And oh, I love Ko. Yeah, 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 me too. He's, he's a friend and a lovely, lovely person. I'm going to interview him to talk a little bit about how that book came to be, because it's really different than a lot of stuff. And I don't know, it'll be more fun to talk to the translator and have them explain it than for me to just like drone on about it for 25 minutes at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> so look for that as a bonus episode coming up soon, probably in the little break between this episode and when we get to when we get to that episode. Uh, it'll be fun. We got some good books. We're going to update the website with that. We had a fun first season. We're going to chat a little bit more, maybe do our wrap up. Thanks so much for listening to uh, Manga Explaining and, and reading along with us with Akira and all the other like 29 books that we read this year. <laughs> <laughs> Or this season and we'll be back for season well we'll be back next week with the wrap-up episode and maybe a few bonus little specials here and there and then we will be back with phoenix volume two the first week of september see you then bye This has been Manga Explaining, episode number 25, Akira, volume 2, by Katsuhiro Otomo. Thanks for listening. For our next episode, we'll be recapping the entire season 1 of Manga Explaining, the books we read, and what we learned along the way. No reading required. Still, though, please consider supporting your local comic book and manga specialty shop. You can find one near you at comicshoplocator.com. You can also follow along with our complete reading list at mangasplaining.com. Thanks to DADS for their musical accompaniment, this episode. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.